Welcome to session 11 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 11th of January. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 35 to 37 and Psalm 11. But so far in Genesis, we've read of the awe-inspiring creation of heaven and earth, which quickly soured due to Adam and Eve's disobedience. Humanity spiralled downwards, compelling God to select Abraham's family as a beacon of hope and righteousness to the rest of the world. We've seen the highs and lows of Abraham, Sarah and their descendants. Jacob, once a trickster, found himself deceived by his uncle Laban, but emerged wiser and more humble. As he returns to his homeland, anxiety grips him at the prospect of facing his estranged brother Esau. In a pivotal moment, Jacob wrestles with God himself, earning a new name, Israel, and a renewed commitment to divine guidance. Upon reuniting, Esau welcomes Jacob back with open arms, allowing him to settle in the promised land. However, the narrative takes a dark turn with sexual violence against Jacob's daughter, showing the corrupt nature of the people of the land. Simeon and Levi, Jacob's sons, retaliate with brutal violence, reinforcing that the brokenness in the world is just as alive and well in those God chooses and commits himself to. While Jacob has been through a character arc of growth, we now have a new generation who needs to learn to wrestle and develop. So let's jump in with Genesis 35, 37. Jacob is now firmly back on family soil, and God has answered Jacob's prayer from Genesis 28, verses 20 to 22. God uses this as an opportunity to reaffirm his promise and commitment to Jacob. He confirms the name change to Israel and reminds Jacob what he's going to do for him and his family. We see that every time God does something for Jacob or reveals himself, Jacob goes on to build an altar or pillar of rocks. He builds something tangible so that when he sees these things again, he can remind himself of the good things that God has done. And so similarly, we need to make sure that we write down and remind ourselves of all the good things that God has done for us. It will give us confidence in the hard times and faith that God is going to do more in the good times. We then have Rachel, who dies giving birth to a final son, Benjamin. Jacob now has all 12 sons. Some people look at Jacob and think, how dare he overwrite Rachel's choice of a name? Typical man. But the issue was Ben-Oni literally meant son of my sorrow. Rachel obviously was not in a great headspace when she named him. She was dying. So Jacob renamed him to give a more, more positive name, son of my right hand. Unfortunately, in this chapter, we also have Reuben committing a horrible act by sleeping with his father's concubines. Genesis 35, verse 22. Remember how when Noah got drunk, I noted that his son Ham may have slept with his wife, his father's wife, so that he could be the alpha male. Well, that's what Reuben is doing here. Jacob doesn't do anything about it straight away, but make note of it because it's going to come back later. We're actually finished now with Jacob. And so for the last few chapters, the story focuses on Jacob's sons. Before moving on, we get a catch up on what happened to Jacob's brother, Esau, and his family. Esau decides to take his family away as there wasn't enough land for both him and his brother. They set up shop in a land called Seir. His descendants would eventually take over this land and become known as the nation of Edom. We then get a list of Esau's descendants and Edom's kings with some descriptions of great deeds that they had done. Finally, we have the familiar story of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. A little detail we often miss is that Joseph would regularly give reports to his father on all that his brothers did wrong. See 37 verse 2. In other words, Joseph used to snitch on his brothers when they would shepherd the sheep together in the fields. 
No wonder they didn't like him. One last point I want to make is on timing. Joseph clearly gets prophetic dreams from God and then tells these dreams to his family, which then gets him into trouble. The problem wasn't the dreams. They really were from God. The problem was Joseph's timing. He assumed as soon as he got the dream, he needed to tell it. We can make the same mistake when we get a prophetic word. We assume that God has given it to us now and therefore we have to speak it out now. But sometimes God gives us prophetic words for ourselves or for others that he wants us to hold on to for a while and pray into before sharing with other people. So next time you feel God speaking to you, first ask God to unpack it and explain it more. But then ask him whether he wants you to share it or hold it. It might just save you from being sold into slavery, which is exactly what Joseph's brothers decide to do. Sell him into slavery and tell their father he was murdered by some wild animal. Just like Cain with Abel before them, Joseph's brothers allow sin to consume and to destroy their brother. And so Jacob mourns for his son, not knowing that far away he is now a slave to an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. But as we'll learn, what humans intend for evil, God intends for good. So let's look at Psalm 11. This psalm is attributed to King David and fits into the category of trust psalm. These psalms sing only of confidence in who God is. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. We start off in verse 1, the Lord is our refuge. Then in verses 2 to 3, we get a false claims on what happens to the righteous and the wicked. Verse 4, the Lord rules on high. Then in verses 5 to 6, we have the truth on what happens to the righteous and the wicked. Verses 7 shows us that the Lord is righteous. And then ending in verse 7, we get an affirmation that the Lord is righteous. The psalmist is clearly going through some struggles because they feel the need to take refuge in the Lord. But the focus isn't really on those struggles. It's firmly on God. So much so that he challenges the claims of others who tell him to flee because their enemies are preparing to take them out. He challenges the idea that the wicked are the ones to control and the righteous have no foundations or strength to stand on. God is on the throne. He sees all things. He is in control, not the wicked. Yes, he might test the righteous to see if they are true, but it is the wicked he will punish and deal with. God is righteous and he will take care of those who are upright before him. In Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, we saw two different ways of bringing God our problems. Start with praise or end with praise. Psalm 11 gives us a third option. Sometimes it's not even worth giving our problems the time of day. Instead, we're better off just grounding ourselves in the foundation of who God is and his goodness. In these situations, our prayers are praise all the way through. Having looked at all of these three Psalms, you may feel like there's a particular route you prefer, and that's fine. But make sure you don't completely ignore the other two. Each one is beneficial in different ways. If you decide you're only ever going to praise, then your heart never really gets to lament. But by the same token, spend too much time on lament and you lose the will to praise. 